0: Reading, you can stay there. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at today. And uh, as I was um, reading over the past week or so, I I came across a verse in Ephesians chapter 2, and it really uh, caused me to stop and think. And it was uh, about the topic of remembering. Remembering. Uh, The human brain is a powerful thing. Uh, And even with all the advances that have been made in medicine, there is still much information that we do not know about the brain um, but when you think about the brain and, and its capabilities it's been estimated according to a scientist uh, and was published in an article in scientific american that the human brain can store approximately two and a half petabytes of information for those of you who don't know what that was or that is like i did uh, that's approximately a million gigabytes of information that your brain can store uh, to put it in more of like a, a hands-on term, if any of you have an iPhone with uh, 256 gigabytes of information that it can store, it's almost 4,000 iPhones worth of information that your brain can store. It's a staggering statistic. There's tons of statistics about the brain and about memory that are it's really interesting. But I'm sure that just like me, there's been a time where you went to the grocery store and you got everything but the thing that you went to the grocery store for, Right? I was doing a project in the house, and I was running a water line from our sink all the way over to our fridge to the ice maker. Um, And I realized that in the middle of the project, I didn't have enough. So I went back to Home Depot, and I went into the store, and I came back out of the store, and I got in my truck, and I fired it up, and I started driving out of the parking lot, and I realized that I got everything but the thing that I needed to get to finish the project. Uh, Maybe other important things you forget as well. Uh, Husbands, what's your anniversary date again? Or uh, what, what years were your children born? Uh, up until very recently, I always struggled to keep my, my son's birthday and my youngest daughter's birthday separate. I always said that Jake was born on August 13th. And that may be right because I still may be confused. I think he was August 14th, 2012, and August 17th, 2014, right? Finally, after eight years of living with Jake and Kate together, I can finally remember their birthday. I think we all would recognize that as humans, we have a tendency to forget. An innate ability to forget the things that ought to be the most important things in our lives. And for this reason, we need reminders. We have calendars that we put in our work schedule, when we're supposed to be at work. We put in other important events so we don't miss dinner with some friends of ours or so we don't forget to actually go out on that date night with our wife. We have grocery lists and shopping lists, lists that we make when we're endeavoring to finish a project, notes attached to the refrigerator, alarm clocks that we set every night so we can wake up on the right time, notifications on our mobile devices, and I could go on and on. But today, I I just want this sermon to serve as a simple reminder of what God has done for us in the gospel. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2 together. We're only going to read uh, the first 10 verses, but we'll draw uh, from a couple other verses as well. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse number 1, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And notice verse 11 through verse 13. Therefore, remember we're far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this afternoon. Our dear Father, we, we come before you and we recognize, Lord, our feebleness. Lord, our feeble worship that we offer to you even now as we come before you to praise you and to glorify your name for the God that you are and for all that you have accomplished in our lives. And God, I pray that you would indeed turn our hearts toward you in this hour. Lord, may each of us be reminded not just of the work that you have done for your church, but the work that you have done for us individually and bringing us out of darkness into light by redeeming us, by saving us, by bringing us up from death, and giving us eternal life, and restoring communion with you. I pray that we would be thankful, that we would strive to tell others about this wonderful salvation that has been granted to us, and that we would never forget the work that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives a real simple outline uh, in verses number 1 through 10. Those are the verses that we're going to be looking at specifically this afternoon. And he, in particular, draws out three things. The first thing that we'll look at is found in verses 1 through 3, and he covers uh, in detail our miserable condition. He then turns to look at our merciful Savior in verses number 4 through 9. And then in verse number 10, he draws our attention back to our mandated walk, what God has for us as believers. But first, he starts in verse number 1, and he goes verse number 1 through verse number 3. And notice how he describes our condition apart from Christ and before our salvation. Here, he's speaking to the Ephesians, and he specifically addresses them. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among, in the sons of disobedience. The first thing he starts off, he says, you were, you were dead. He doesn't say you were sick. He doesn't say you were mostly dead. As we all know, mostly dead means slightly alive, right? He says, you were dead in your trespasses, in your sins. Um, I'm sure everyone know, here knows that I, I work in a hospital. I'm a nurse. And for every patient that comes to the ICU that we care for, uh, there is something in the chart called a history and physical, or h p as we call it. What that h does or that history and physical does is that physician will go and examine a patient and take into account all of the factors that they have contributing to their current illness. It will take any past medical conditions or chronic medical conditions. It will cover all of the abnormalities in the labs and testing that we see, things contributing to their illness or the underlying factors. And then at the end of all of that, after outlining all of the problems that this patient has, they'll come up with a treatment plan, outlining each problem and what solution we have to fix it. But that's not how Paul really describes our condition here. Paul doesn't describe our condition as a physician would examine an illness and outline a treatment plan. Rather, what Paul states of us as our condition reads more like a medical examiner's report. In describing the deceased and listing their cause of death, he says this You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. We were spiritually dead. Here, Paul is not talking about a physical death. You were physically dead, and then God raised you to physical life. He was talking about a spiritual death. Calvin says on this uh, verse, he says, He does not simply mean that they were in danger of death, but he declares that it was a real and present death under which they labored. As spiritual death is nothing else than the alienation of the soul from God, we all are born as dead men. And we live as dead men until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. This is congruent with what Christ states in John chapter 5 and verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death unto life. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Our state was very simple. We were dead. Dead in our trespasses and in our sins. You may say, well, you know, if we're spiritually dead, that means we couldn't do anything, right? I would say, to one degree, yes, and to another degree, no. To one degree, yes, we cannot do anything positively towards God to reconcile us to himself. But even as dead sinners, we were very active. Notice Paul describes not only our spiritual death, but down in verses 2 and 3, he describes our active rebellion against God in our flesh. Notice verse 2. He says, in which you once walked. What were we walking in? In our trespasses and in our sins. Um, I I forgot to write down this term, and I'm I'm not going to attempt to say it, but uh, it's a Hebrew term that the the Jews used to refer to your walk. And they had this as as kind of like a, a guideline um, for a conduct of living and right living uh, as a Jew. And that word that they had for to, to I think it was um, halakha, or haka, I think it's halakha, um, is, is what they used to to kind of guide their life and to guide their choices, um, came, coming from the, the Talmud. But that word means simply to walk, to conduct your life, to live in such a fashion And here Paul, I think, is using this word, and I think later we'll see he also uses this word in a positive sense, Um, but here he's using this word to describe the way in which they conducted their lives, always entrenched in our trespasses and in our sins. We were walking in them. We were living in them. We were active in our sin. Paul goes on to describe how we were active in our sins he says um, three things. We see, he says that we were following the course of this world. Here, Paul uses two words. Um, very interestingly enough, each of these words, um, course or the, the word ion in the Greek, and also the word cosmos, the course of this world. Each of these terms are used in scripture in other places to talk about the way that unbelievers conduct themselves in rebellion to God and to his word. But Paul kind of stacks them both together, emphasizing the fact that we were actively following after this secular world system that is opposed to Christ, opposed to God and his rule. He also says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, the ion, the age. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But as unbelievers, we were very conformable to this world. Seeking after the things that this world desires and lifts up on a pedestal and tells us that we ought to have or ought to seek after. These two words used together really emphasize the pervasiveness of this corrupt world system. Uh, John Stott, an Anglican pastor, said of this passage, both words together here express a whole social value system which is absolutely alien to God. It permeates, indeed, even dominates non-Christian society and holds people in captivity. It is an outlook that repudiates God, repudiates his absolutes, and is materialistic in nature. So we were following after the course of this world. We were going along with the rest of the world as we... hear about the straight and narrow way and then the the broad way that leads to destruction, we were following along with everyone else in that broad way, following after this world, following after its follies and its lusts and its desires. Not only were we following after the course of this world, but he says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, to state it plainly, we were following after the devil. We were following after Satan, the God of this world. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. We were following not only the God of this world, but we were following our Father just as believers we now have god as our father so those in disbelief and that are separated from god are children of the devil and follow after his will and his desires you don't believe that john 8:44 jesus is confronting people who say they believe say they're followers of christ but what does he say to them he says you are of your father the devil And your will, your desire is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Not only were we following after this world, but we were following after Satan We were following after the devil and seeking, actively seeking to do his desires. That's what it was like. That's what we were like. He goes on, not only were we following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he also says that we were, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Verse number three, notice. He goes from speaking directly to the Ephesians, but then in verse number three, he says, and among whom we all once lived. I was reading, I can't remember which commentary I was reading, but I saw something very interesting. He said, uh, Saul the Pharisee would probably disdain to say that Jews and Gentiles were on the same plane. Obviously, according to the Pharisees, the Jews had many more benefits. They were not like those Gentile dogs but he says Paul the Christian viewed it differently. Paul the Christian viewed each and every person as the same. We have no benefit by saying we come from a certain line like many of the Jews believe. Well, we have Abraham to our father. Even in that passage that Jesus Christ told them that they were of their father, the devil. There's nothing in us that can merit any good thing from God. And he says all of us Once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Galatians chapter 5, Paul outlines some of these works of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, and here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is what our flesh has to offer. And I'm sure we can all think back to a time in our life where we were that person, seeking after the desires of our flesh, seeking out for number one, self-centered in our thinking, not wanting to serve others, but serving only ourselves and stepping on anyone that came in our way to do so. He says you are serving the passions of our flesh, not only carrying out the desires of our body, but carrying out the desires of our mind. Many times we think of sin as an outward action, but we see that Christ... uh, narrowed down even to the very thoughts of our heart. If you've looked on a woman with lust, you have committed adultery with her already in your heart, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. If you hate your brother without a cause, you are guilty of murder toward your brother. Not only sins of action, but sins of thought. And beloved, all of us were given over to our own passions. Because of our sin, because of our trespassing before God, we find ourselves condemned. It says we were by nature the children of wrath. Not only are we condemned in Adam our father as a partaker of his nature, we are fallen and sinners, but by continuing to follow after our flesh, to follow after the devil, to follow after this world, we were continuing to store up wrath. And we were by nature the children of wrath. And notice what Paul says here, like the rest of mankind. This um, phrase that he uses here was often used by Jews to refer to Gentiles. You had the Jews and then you had, in a very derogatory way, I could hear them saying this, the rest of mankind. There's the Jews and then there's the Gentiles, but he says all of us. No matter who we are, no matter where we came from, we were all by nature the children of wrath. This was the case with all mankind, Jew and Gentile, slaves and those who were free. No one is exempt from his list. And that's where we were, each and every one. I'm so glad that this passage doesn't just end there and say, No hope, guys. That's it. But notice in verse number four, we not only see our miserable condition, but we see our merciful Savior. Verse number four, he says these two words, and it just changes everything. But God. We were sinners. We were hopeless. We were condemned. We were under the wrath of God. But God intervened. He stepped in, and we see, first of all, the nature of our God, and we also will look at the actions of our God in salvation and bringing us to himself. He says, but God being rich in mercy. What is mercy? Showing pity and compassion on those of lesser estate, or in our case, those of no estate. Those that rightly deserve to be condemned in hell for all eternity. God showed mercy. He showed pity. But not only, it doesn't only say that God is merciful. He says that God is rich in mercy. To say God is merciful would be to exhaust all of our finite bounds of understanding when it comes to mercy. But when you say that God is rich in mercy... Just like that last verse we read in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, he used all all of these superlatives. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. Super, hyper, abundantly above everything we can comprehend or ask or uh, think. So is the mercy of God. It is rich. Surpassing all comprehensible bounds of our finite mercy, or what we what we think of when we think of human mercy. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. We not only see the mercy of God, but we see the love of God. My, um, my dad used to sing, we used to go to uh, different churches, and uh, one of my dad's favorite songs was uh, The Love of God, How Rich and Pure, How Measureless and Strong, right? I'm not sure if you all know that hymn or not, but It's in our hymnal. You you should go read it after after service today. The love of God has absolutely no bounds. 1 John chapter 5 says, God is love. And it says, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Here Paul speaks as the love of God As a fountainhead from which his gracious action and salvation flows. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us, because of the love that he has for his people. Again, this is restated here in Ephesians chapter 2. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. Notice he again reminds us of our fallen condition. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. We see the nature of our God. We see his mercy. We see his love. But let's take a break for a second, and before we go through God's action in salvation here in the next couple of verses, let's skip down to verse number 8 and 9. And we'll look very briefly at the manner of our salvation or the means of our salvation. Notice what he says in verse number 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God... Not a result of works so that no one may boast. When we think about salvation, before we look at the active role that God has in saving us and making us alive and bringing us to Him, we must recognize that as dead sinners, there is nothing we could do to make ourselves alive. Nothing we could do to merit any goodness before God. In fact, on the contrary, the only thing we could merit before God... Was more and more judgment, more and more wrath. Salvation is a gift; it is not something that we can muster up within ourselves, as Paul says here. Lest that we look at ourselves and say, "Hey, hey look at look at me, man! I was such a, I was such a good sinner. Um, I merited something before God." You can't boast in this salvation. It has nothing to do with the goodness or. Uh, I say goodness uh, the the subjective per- percepted goodness in you, on the contrary, we are all all bad. It is only by the grace of God that we are saved. It is his gift in saying that it is the gift of God, he sums up everything that comes before not only the gracious nature of the gift, but the faith itself that we have that we exercise towards God by faith. Clinging to Christ, that also is a gift of God, not something that we can have a greater measure of in and of our own selves. It is something that God bestows upon his people so that they might call upon him and run to him. It is a gift of God, not of our doing. So let's go back to verse number four and following and look at what God did for us in salvation. The first thing that we see is that God made us alive. I Memorized this when I was a kid in the King James, and I, I've always loved that word, quickened. I don't know why. Um, quickened. I'm not sure if I thought like the quick cook, uh, quaker oats, you know, or something like that. I don't know. Um, but God has made us alive. He took what was dead, what was lifeless, what was cold and numb, and he breathed into it life and raised us out of that dead state. We call this Regeneration. Due to our deadness and sin, the only thing that could help us was new life. By by Christ's death on the cross, he took the payment that we rightly deserved. He removed that sin that was a barrier between a holy God and a sinful people. And by his death, his resurrection, he conquered death. Both physical death and spiritual death. And the only reason that we can have new life in Christ or have life at all is because Jesus raised again from the dead. John 14 and verse 19, he says, Because I live, you will live also. Paul states in the book of Corinthians, If Christ were not raised from the dead, we would have been, of all men, most miserable. But Christ is alive. And by his life, we have life. He made us alive in him through union with Christ isn't this the picture that's portrayed in baptism Romans chapter 6 verses 4 and 7 Paul says we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life for if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a in a resurrection like his now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So he raised us up, he made us alive, he regenerated us. And then secondly, let's look and see what, what else he did. He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Now, sometimes we can separate these things out and look at how he raised us up with him and then separately look at see how he seated us with him in heavenly places. But, but Paul is really just drawing off what he's already seated in, in chapter 1. Look over at chapter 1 across the page. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 19. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and notice, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What Paul is saying is, what Christ has, we have, because we are united to him. What the Redeemer has is now bestowed upon the redeemed, because we are united with him in his death and we are raised by his resurrection. It says he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's two really two different ways that we can look at this. Uh, Some people take a look at this and they say, well, raised up, he's talking about the final resurrection, and that hasn't actually been uh, completed yet, so this is a future event. They also would look at being seated with him in heavenly places, and say, well, this refers to our communion with him and our presence with him in heaven uh, for all eternity, and this also is something that hasn't transpired yet. Uh, But I think to a certain extent, you could say that both of these things are true of the believer now. First of all, we are raised with him. Indeed, we were raised from spiritual death unto life, even as it says in Uh, One of the verses we already read, this is the work of regeneration that we experience as believers when we trust in Christ. We know that we have been made alive, regenerated, made new. Secondly, this also can refer, some would say, to the final resurrection when believers are given renewed bodies at the return of Christ. Note, very interestingly, about both of these things, even if viewed as only a future event, uh, notice that Paul does not use a, a future tense to describe these things, but he rather uses a past tense verb. He says, he has, has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Even if you feel like if you say this is these are both future things that will one day happen, In the mind of God, they have already happened because we are believers. We are secured in Christ. And just as surely as God has made us alive through faith in Christ and our union with him, he will just as surely complete the work of salvation in both sanctification and one day glorification when we are in his presence. I think both both things can be true at once. I believe, yes, uh, we are raised with him. We are regenerated. And yes, one day we will experience the final resurrection. Notice also he says uh, that we are seated, that he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As believers, we are no longer of this world. Again, this was a direct reference to chapter 1 and verse 20 where Paul speaks of the power of God on raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. But as believers, we see clearly in Scripture that we are no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19 speaks of the people that are the enemies of God, and it says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul also encourages believers in Colossians chapter 3 and speaks more specifically about our position in Christ. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. I would say, in a sense, when it comes to this world, we are kind of above all of the fray, so to speak. We don't have to become entrenched in all of the worries and cares of this world because we have a Savior. We have a Deliverer, a Redeemer, who has both saved us and redeemed us, And called us to himself. But why did he do all this? Because we were that good? Because God couldn't stand living forever without you? Because of the goodness in us? Absolutely not. Paul also gives us the purpose that God did all of these things for us. Verse number 7. He says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are a specimen, an example of the mercy and grace of God. It's so that people can look at our lives and take heart knowing that if God could save a wicked sinner like Josh Knickerbocker, he could save them too. And so we can look back in history and be encouraged, knowing that even the Apostle Paul, who is penning this letter to the Ephesians, that God saved him from a life of hatred and even murder and persecution of the church. If God was able to transform such a person as the Apostle Paul, certainly he can save you and me It's so sinners can look at our lives and see the example of grace that God has bestowed upon us. Matthew Henry said this. In speaking of verse seven, he said, "The goodness of God in converting and saving sinners heretofore is a proper encouragement to others, in aftertime, to hope in His grace and mercy, and to apply themselves to these." God, having this in his design, poor sinners should take great encouragement from it. Not only do we see our miserable state and our merciful Savior, but we see our mandated walk in verse number 10. Notice he says, Our salvation is not of works so that no man can boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had pre- prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice it says, we are his workmanship. We are the new creation of God. Second Corinthians chapter 5 expounds upon this. says this, if, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Paul says we are his workmanship. We are his new creation. But he has not created us to sit. And as I was, always heard from the old preachers, that, uh, to sit and to sour and to just be there. God's created us with a purpose. He has a purpose in making us new and raising us up from death. That purpose is found here in verse number 10. He has created us in Christ Jesus for good works. Created us so that we might do things that are pleasing in his sight. By his strength and for his glory, that we might help one another. That we might encourage one another. That we might spread the gospel. So that we might live an upright life so that people can look at us and say, they're not like me. They're a Christian. They believe in God. They've been changed. There's a difference between them. We used to run together. We used to do all of the things that we did as sinners. But not anymore. God has called us to a life of good works. Just as Paul had emphasized previously that we are not saved by our works, so he is now emphasizing that we are saved unto good works. Because we have been raised from death into life, because we have been changed and redeemed and made new, we will now seek the things of our Father. And notice he uses this word towards the end of that, verse number 10. He uses this word, walk again. Just as we once walked in our former walk, seeking after the world, the flesh, and the devil, God has ordained that believers, that those who follow him, are to walk in good works and follow after godliness and holiness, not So that we might be saved. But because we have been saved. We should seek after these things. That's what God did for everyone here who is a believer. Everyone that could raise their hand with me and say yes I'm a believer. I trust in God. You were once dead in your sins. But because of the grace and mercy of God you are no longer there. He has raised you up. He has made you new. And he's given you a new purpose. So what's Paul's conclusion? What does Paul say to the the Ephesians? He says, remember. How quickly do we forget that we were once alienated from God? That we were once separated from God? We wake up in the morning and many times we don't even think about the magnitude of our salvation and what that means for us as believers. We are no longer under his wrath, but he has blessed us. He has included us with Christ the beloved. I think one thing, if if you were to take nothing from this sermon, but one thing, we ought always to remember where we came from and the gracious work that God did in us And through us, to bring us to where we are today. Again, nothing that we can say that we're good. Nothing that we can boast about. It's only from his grace and mercy. And Paul here reminds the Ephesians. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Very quickly, I'd like to give us a a few things. Why should we remember the gospel? That's essentially what Paul is saying here. Takes all of these 10, 12, the entirety of the, the second chapter, 21 verses. And essentially what he's saying is, Remember the goodness of God in his gospel. Remember the gospel. Why should we why ought we remember what God has done for us? I think number 1 it will stir us with thanksgiving and praise toward God in our hearts. I say to my shame there have been days that have gone by where I haven't fully considered that I am I'm a Christian not because of any merit, but because God saved me. He raised me up from that miry pit and planted me firmly upon the rock. And that ought to stir thanksgiving and praise in our hearts. We ought always to be thanking God for the work that he has done in us and the work that he is continuing to do in sanctification. I think secondly, remembering where we came from, remembering our deadness in sin, remembering our alienation from God will push us to be humble. It's because of God's grace alone that we are saved. God didn't look at any one of us and say, you know what, that person is really, of all the people in this world, that one is really worthy of salvation. On the contrary, each of us was unworthy, but because of Christ and his grace, we are made worthy and partakers in his salvation. And that ought to humble us, knowing that it is all of God, And not of us. Number three, we can be encouraged and take hope that just as God performed this work of regeneration in our hearts, so also He is continuing to work in us and through us to conform us to the image of Christ by His sanctifying work by the Spirit in our lives. And not only so, we ought to be striving to mortify the sins of our flesh and to seek after godliness and holiness in our lives. Number four, it reminds us that others who were just like us, dead in sin, need to hear the message of salvation and redemption, and it should stir up a desire in us to tell them of the hope that we have in Christ. I often um, heard when I was a kid, I think it became kind of cliche, but often hear pastors say, if you had the cure for cancer and you kept that to yourself, what would you think of yourself? What could rightly be said of you? But folks, we have something far greater. We have a hope in Christ that goes beyond the grave. We know that our sins have been paid for, and we should be telling others. I was uh, very convicted. I usually work most Saturdays, and because of that, I haven't been able to go to a lot of the, the evangelism outreach. And I was able to go last night, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, um, but I was encouraged. But I was also convicted that I have such great news, and I haven't shared it like I ought to. Lastly, why must we remember the gospel? If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ by faith, and you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, There is no hope for you apart from Christ. And of all of us, you ought to remember the gospel as well because it is your only hope. You cannot stand before God on your own merit. You cannot stand before God in judgment and expect anything less than a harsh, guilty verdict in the wrath of God. But through Christ, we have a mediator. We have one who paid for all of our sin. If you're here today and you're not saved, trust in Christ. Cling to him as your only hope and you will find him to be a perfect savior. We must always remember. Let's remember the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would stir within our hearts a a desire to frequently recall the work that you have done for us. Lord, to never have it leave our minds, to always remember where we were before you found us and saved us and called us out of darkness into light. And Father, I pray that you would stir within us a desire, Lord, an action, a compassion on others who don't know you to share the good news of your gospel with them as well. In Jesus' name we pray.